Good morning. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 5, taking a short break from 1 Corinthians. He is risen. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi, dead. Abraham and Moses, dead. But Jesus is alive. I'm pleading already to ask you to not put your hope in those things, those people. Put your hope in your money that will soon fade away, the things here of this earth. I'm asking you to place your hope in one who is alive. You can have a sure hope in Christ. Spring is this amazing season of hope. I've not heard many people come up to me and say, you know what, I really hate spring. I really wish it would go to winter again. Or I really hate spring. Let's go ahead and speed up the summer because I really love the heat and to sweat as much as possible. Never heard that. Maybe there are parts of spring that you don't like if you have allergies. But no one has come up to me and said, you know, I really hate spring. It's a really horrible season. Spring is this time of hope. It's this time of coming out of the cold, coming out of the frozenness, and seeing all the beauty of creation come back to life, as it were. It's a great season. You look around the weather, it's like everybody feels better when the sun's shining and the weather's 60 degrees and sunny. But we're in Oklahoma, and we know that that hope doesn't last either. Within a matter of hours, it could be winter again or summer. And probably both within a few days. During spring, we have March Madness still going on. It's a time of hope. 60 some odd teams make it to this tournament. Everybody's got a shot, right? Anybody can win this thing. No, they can't. Most of the teams lose in the first round. Half of them are already gone and eliminated, right? Your, your hope for your team normally dies pretty fast. Around here, it normally does. And so when we think even about this season of hope that is spring and all the good that goes with it, we can realize and understand that there are a few sure bets in life. That even if you have a lot of hope that comes from spring and the basketball and the things that are going on around you and the weather, that those things are quickly fading, that there are still more stuff to be done. If you, if you have great hope in mankind during spring thinking this is going to be the year we're going to get better, then you look at things that are happening in Kenya, massacres of people, and you start to say like, yeah, this is reality. We can't put our hope in the here and now, but there is a sure hope. And the scripture turns us to it over and over and over again, and it is in Christ Jesus. And so as we look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, that's what we're going to see. Paul wrote this to Christians, to believers, and he indeed is even writing to us to get us to rejoice in the amazing love that has been shown to us and the reconciling work that has been shown and done for us by Jesus Christ. And he wants that to be the grounds for our hope. He wants that to be the grounds for our joy and for our assurance. Nothing else will do. And so he wrote this passage, not just for our knowledge, but for our joy. So if you look in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, what's on display in this passage is the love of God. But we need to see who this love is directed towards. So if you look with me in, 
in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And so even from the beginning of this passage, Paul wants to make it clear that the love of God is directed at a certain people, and it's directed at what he calls the weak and the ungodly. And when he says this word weak, he's not saying that they're weak, but they could do it if they just would try harder. He's talking about people that have the incapacity to do anything for their own good here. These are the weak and the ungodly. They cannot help themselves. They need some help. So the description keeps going in this passage, and it doesn't get much better for who the love is directed toward. If you look in verse 8, he says, while they were still sinners. If you look in verse 10, it's while we were enemies. So this love is directed toward sinners. I like what one author, C.S. Lewis, has said about this. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. We are rebels who have to lay down our arms. So who are the weak and the ungodly, the sinners and the enemies of God? Well, Paul has laid this out for us very clear in Romans. doesn't want anybody to be in confusion here. He says from chapter 1, those who can know God by his attributes that are uh, amazing and invisible, but great and enough to be known, that are shown in creation, those who can know those things, which is all of us, and don't honor God, those are the sinners. He says those who worship anything that is created rather than the creator, those are the enemies of God. Those are sinners. Those are the ungodly, the weak. He says in chapter 1 again, those who are full of envy, who are full of murder, who are full of strife, deceit, or maliciousness. Those who are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, or ruthless. Chapter 14, he says, anything that doesn't proceed out of faith is sin. And so any one of us or anyone in general, those who act out of anything other than faith in the one true living God, who are delight in anything other than the one true living God, those people are called by the scripture very clearly sinners, enemies of God the ungodly, and the weak. In short, that's to say that's all of us. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A lot of exclusive claims there that there is not even one exception to that. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, you probably know this verse well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'd like to think that we are born in some sort of spiritual neutral zone. That we're born in some sort of spiritual neutrality. Especially when we look at our kids, we'd like to think they're spiritually neutral, right? The Bible is really clear that there is no spiritual neutral zone. There is no one who has this spiritual neutrality toward God. We are all born as enemies of God. The Bible won't have some sort of neutral zone for any of us, including our children. In the Bible, in Christianity, the question is never whether someone is a sinner. We all are. Not even one The question is, from the scripture, is are we aware that we are sinners? Are we aware of our sin? Are we convicted by these things that we have done against the living God? Which prompts one pastor to say, to be convicted of your sins would be the best gift you could ever get. Which sounds ridiculous, 
Because being convicted of sin is not a fun experience. And it does not seem like a good gift. But it's the reality that we're given from Scripture. And so to walk forward in a way that's not recognizing that truth is to be in deceit. Sin is truly our critical problem. God must do something about this problem. We cannot get around it. We have a critical problem of sin. We are enemies. And when it says in verse 8 that we're enemies of God, it doesn't just mean that we're warring against him. It also means that God has hostility toward us. You see, in the transaction between us and God, the one who's actually offended isn't us. We're not offended in working against God. God is offended by us and our lack of faith and trusting in him. He is the one who is the hostile one here. We are actively working outside of his parameters, and he is the one who is offended because he is the one who is holy and righteous. And so if we're going to move forward in a way that would be helpful for us, or that's honest, we need to be aware of our sin and who it is against. And so Paul, he wants to begin by pointing out this great love of God, but let's look who it's pointed at, and it's pointed at the weak, the ungodly, the sinners, the enemies of God, which is all of us. And then he begins to, to point out our position, to let us know that he's not just talking in generality. There's not even one who's not sinful, not even one who's un, not ungodly. So what does God do with sinners? He continues in verse 6. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does God do with sinners, enemies, the weak and ungodly? It's very clear from verse 6 that God loves them. He dies for them. Now, keep in mind that God, in his holiness, in his righteousness, has no obligation to love anybody whatsoever and be perfectly just and perfectly holy to not love any of us. And how could we as the clay say back to him, what have you made? But that's not who our God is. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God met us, met sinners, met the weak, met the ungodly at the point of our need. God meets us. He has love for sinners. And this isn't just love directed toward sinners. This is love that dies for sinners. If you continue on in verse 7 and 8. For one person will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A man at that time dying for another man, even if he was a good man, even if he was a righteous man, would still be pretty much unheard of. Indeed, even today, we could say the same thing. There's not a lot of stories going out around out there. There's a lot more of stories of the opposite thing happening. People protecting their own life for their own good at the expense of others. And he says one might do that, maybe. The greatest imaginable kind of human love would be to give one's life for another. And he says that might happen, possibly it's pretty unheard of, but it's possibly. But then we get this incredible statement that God shows his love for sinners in that he died for them. 
Now, it would be a pretty big deal if I laid down my life for one of you. Now, I even like you guys, right? But that would be a huge deal if someone was getting ready to get thrown in front of a bus and I just shoved them out of the way and just got creamed. People would think that was a pretty amazing story. But I'm just a man. I'm really no different than you. In fact, I'm a sinner, maybe a greater sinner than most of you. And so one sinner dying for another sinner, that's, that's amazing in and of itself. But that's not what's going on here. Consider this. It's not just one sinner dying in place of another sinner. This is God himself, the one who created these people, dying for those whom he created. And so, it doesn't even compare with one sinner dying for another. One man giving his life for another. Jesus died for sinners, for enemies. What he didn't do is wait for us to kind of get cleaned up. He didn't wait for us to start figuring out and going to to church. He didn't wait for us to, to kick all of our drug and alcohol problems. He didn't wait for us to stop looking at pornography. He didn't wait for us to stop being prideful jerks. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you had any thoughts coming in here that maybe sometime I'll get it together and then I'll be good enough for Christ, or I'll get it, I'll get it together and then we'll see, like, I'm, I'm good, I'm acceptable now, you need to understand the scripture that you're never going to be good enough and that Christ died for you even still while you were still a sinner. We don't get things straightened out before we come to Christ. He comes to us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our all of our sin, and he dies for us. This is how God shows his love for sinners, for us. And let me just point out that you may have a great relationship with your parents. You may have a great relationship with your kids. You may be really close with some friends, but you have never been loved like that. Not even close. So have you questioned if God really loves you? Has that ever popped into your mind? Given the circumstances, God, do you even care about me? Given all my struggles that I'm going through, does it even matter what I do or don't do? Are you even involved in this? Given all my trials, does this even matter? Paul wants to say to us, sinners, that there is no question. And I don't want anybody leaving here with any thought or question of if God loves me. Does he love me or does he not love me? Because what he wants us to do, what Paul wants us to do, is say, just look and see. Did Christ die for sinners or did he not? And the answer is he did. So you cannot doubt God's love for you or you should not doubt it. God's love wasn't just some theory. It wasn't just some idea. It wasn't just a theological concept or truth. It was a demonstration for us demonstrated clearly by Jesus as he bears the wrath of God on the cross for sinners and enemies. It's not a love that we deserved. It's not a love that's for the deserving. It's not a love for the lovable. It's love for sinners. It's love for enemies. It's love for the weak and the ungodly. And sending his son to die for sinners, God was giving himself this undeserved love to us 
So we could miss in Scripture some subtle hints. We could misinterpret certain things. But we shouldn't miss this. The cross stands as this huge monument to the unbelievable love of God for sinners. It's undeniable, unconditional, and demonstrated for us. We don't have to wonder what it was like. It was seen in Jesus. And so for all of us who came in here today, we can know that God is a greater Savior than we are sinners. God is a better Savior than you are a sinner. And believe me, you are a good sinner. I am a good sinner, but we have a better Savior who dies for us in the midst of that. So God has demonstrated his love for us and that when Jesus died for us. But what did this death accomplish? What was it all for? What was it all about? If we continue in verse 9, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified by his blood. Jesus' death for sinners, it accomplishes this justification, this made, we're made right in the sight of God. By his blood. So when he says that we are justified, we have a right relationship with God now. We have this, this before the, the judge, this innocent verdict that we do not deserve that is declared over us. We are justified. But notice that this justification isn't just a gift that is given to us. No, it costs something. It says it was, we were justified by his blood. God, in his holiness and his righteousness, couldn't just let sin go and say, forget about it, you're justified. That's not how God could work, or he would cease to be God, and he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be righteous, he wouldn't be upholding his own great name. God had to do something about sin. So what's to be done? We can't take it. God had to take it in and of himself, and so this is what he does. He sends Jesus to die for sinners so that they might be justified by his blood. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. We cannot be justified without that blood. That blood is a representation of life. And we can't offer our own blood for our own life because my blood is sin infected. But there was one whose blood wasn't. God and his infinite holiness and righteousness and justice had to act. And he acted in the person of Christ. The wages of sin is death. Deserves death. And we're not justified by our own death or our own blood. We're made right in the sight of a holy God by his blood. That is, by the work of Christ, the guilt that is all over us before a holy God is removed. That is, that the wrath of God that is pouring down, ready to be unleashed upon us, his enemies, is removed from us by his blood. And so now he says, for those who believe in Christ, you are justified now, and he continues on in verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, Paul uses much more a few times in this passage, but he's, what he's doing, he's arguing from something that's much harder to do, a greater thing, to a lesser thing. 
If you were justified by the blood of Christ, which is a greater thing, it's a great thing for enemies of God to be justified before a holy God, then how much more will you be saved from his wrath? So he's pointing to a future salvation. You are going to be saved on that day in the end when God's wrath will be unleashed upon all of us, except for those who trust in Christ. The wrath of God spoken of here is this fury against all ungodliness. And he says, how much more you'll be saved from that as well. I like what one commentator said when he said, in order to be a salvation to, it must be a salvation from. And nothing sums up this from more significantly than the concept of the wrath of God. In the end, all will be called to give an account. And in the end, All of us will come up short with something to account for all the sin that we have done. But we have a place where we can be justified and God will show himself just. There is wrath to come. We can be certain of that. So all of us need to be saved from God's wrath because of our sin. And by Jesus' blood, the wrath of God that stands against us has been removed. It's been taken away. Now and on that day. So for those who have trusted in Christ, who fully placed their faith in him, we don't have to worry about that day when we see God face to face and say, what am I going to say then? Because his blood has covered us and we will be saved. But the good news keeps on pouring in from Paul for those who believe. You look in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, once again, greater to lesser. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The good news keeps coming. And this time he talks about reconciliation, not justification. Paul is arguing That if you can be reconciled now as enemies of God, still in your sinful flesh, then how much more will you be saved by his life? So when he uses this term reconciliation, what he's talking about is enemies who've been made friends. Enemies who have had, they've been in animosity, they've had something between them, but now they have peace. Two estranged parties brought together. And he says Jesus is the one who breaks down that hostility that stands between sinners and a holy God. You remember as Christ dies on the cross, the temple veil which separated sinful humanity from a holy God was ripped in two that sinners might enter in, that people might come into that place. In October 2011, there's a U.S. citizen by the name of Jessica Buchanan. She was an aid worker in Kenya and Somalia. And one day after work, her and one of her co-workers were kidnapped by Somali pirates and held for ransom. Under some pretty extreme circumstances, they were out in the middle of the Somalia desert, which I haven't been there, but I'm not guessing that it's the best place to be all the time, where it's hot, where they were lacking cover, where I'm guessing, I know that the country is fairly poor, so I'm guessing that they don't treat people that they kidnap very well. So I don't think she ate real well. They didn't take care of her real well or this other hostage things were pretty bad. And the kidnappers stayed with them day and night. They were under surveillance so that they could get some money. 93 days, Jessica Buchanan and her co-worker 
were held as hostages until through some communication back and forth with this ransom price, through the FBI's intervention uh, and her husband's intervention, calling and finding out things, and and through technology looking down on the situation and seeing the, the health of these individuals, finally, the president decided to act. It was time. Jessica Buchanan's health was fading quickly, and they knew that we have to do something because it doesn't look like these negotiations are going where we want them to go. And so the president sends in some of the U.S.'s elite forces, SEAL Team 6, supposedly. They come in under the cover of darkness. No one even knows they're around. All of the people that had kidnapped them are completely taken out, and the two hostages, completely unharmed, completely safe, are then flown out of that place and reunited with their families. Jessica Buchanan, after 93 days, got to go see and hug and be with her husband again. You see, what was happening was that there was an enemy that stood between Jessica and her husband. There was an enemy that made this huge separation so much so that they couldn't be crossed until someone was sent. Someone was sent in after her to pull her out to reconcile her. And when that enemy was removed, there was, as you can imagine, full reconciliation. And there is something that separates us as sinners from a holy God. There is a great enemy that we don't want to underestimate that is separating us from a holy God. But God sent someone in after us. And Jesus by his death, by his resurrection, by his life, has taken out that enemy and is bringing us back to himself. God's wrath has been removed. Sin's power has been removed. The guilt that should be upon us for our sin has been taken out. And to a sinful, needy, and dying world, Jesus says to us, come and be reconciled. I've taken out the enemy. The cross, the resurrection is the grounds for our hope. We can be assured of reconciliation before a holy God because of what Christ has done, because of his work. And so believers, you can have sure-founded joy, not joy that's passing like the shadows, but joy that is rock solid and firm because we have Christ. We've been reconciled by his death. But there's another much more given here. If you continue looking on, now that we've been reconciled by his death, we shall be saved, as the end of verse 10 says, much more shall we be saved by his life. Jesus died to bring justification, to bring reconciliation now for us presently, those who would believe. But what guarantee do we have then? What guarantee do we have in the future? What guarantee do we have on that day when we meet God face to face and we see him in all his holiness and greatness and we see his justice? What will we have then? What hope do we have to stand for us then? And the guarantee is given for us in that we are saved by his life. Because Jesus is the one who did not just die, although he did die. He's also the one who lives. He's also the one who rose. 
and his life and his resurrection, they stand as this guarantee for sinners that you can be saved now and you will be saved because Jesus is alive. We can share in his life now. We can share in his life in the resurrection because Jesus is not dead. He can still assure us of this thing because he's risen. If you look, Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will condemn us? We have God himself in the person of Christ interceding for us, living for us, not dead anymore for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He has been raised indeed is interceding for us. The grounds of our hope and our assurance for that day when we will meet God in the twinkling of an eye, see him face to face, is not our works. It's not that we were a good person. It's not that you came to every Easter Sunday since you were born. The ground of our hope, of our being saved on that day, it's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our assurance doesn't come from a feeling. Not trying to conjure up in you this warm feeling that says, I'll be fine on that day. What I'm trying to point you to is the resurrected Christ. That's where our assurance comes from. And what an amazing truth. And yet, there's more. If you continue in verse 11, the good news just pours on us as we see God's love poured out for us wicked sinners. Verse 11, more than that, again, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The, presence, the present reconciliation that we experience through the death and resurrection of Christ is that we should experiencing through this experience called rejoicing. We experience this reconciliation from God and we know of it and are assured of it in the future. And so then we can have joy. And this is an appropriate reaction for rebels who've been saved by God himself to rejoice. You were an enemy. You've been made a friend through the work of Christ. You have much ground for joy. God, through Jesus, has reconciled. He saved us from wrath. What should our response be? Of course, Paul turns to rejoicing. One commentator says that glorying knows no restraint and can't be too exaggerated when it is in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should know no restraint and we cannot exaggerate no matter how loud we sing or shout what God has done for us in the person of Christ. There may be a lot going on in your life. Maybe this is a really stressful time and things are really busy and weighing down on you. Maybe you have doubted the love of God or you've been faltering in your faith. You've been downhearted and trodden and depressed. But if you're a believer, you need to contemplate Jesus. You need to think about his life lived for you. You need to think about his death that he died for you as a sinner. And you need to think about his life as he was raised 
See, we have in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection grounds for hope, grounds for assurance, grounds for joy, even in the midst of all that is going on in life. We have been loved. We have been justified. We have been saved. We have been reconciled. We will be saved. We will be reconciled. And so we can rejoice right now and till that day, until forevermore. If you are not a believer, contemplate Christ. Think of what he has done. Think about this love that he has so clearly demonstrated to wicked sinners and believe. See, verse 11 reminds us that Paul, he did not write this passage for our information, but for our exaltation. One author says that Christian exaltation in God begins with the shame-faced recognition that we have no claim on him at all, continues with wondering worship that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us, and ends with this humble confidence that, we, that he will complete the work he has begun. This is how we exalt in God. We recognize what he's done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We recognize what he will do for us because Christ lives on that day. So we rejoice. You will only rejoice if you believe this is true. And you stake it all on Christ. You will only rejoice if you see God's love for you as a sinner, love that dies, love that reconciles, love that lives. You will only rejoice if you believe these things. So there's the question. Have you believed these things? Are you believing these things? When Jessica Buchanan was taken out of basically a hellhole in Somalia where she was being antagonized and suffering and being tortured, when she was taken out and flown home, when that enemy was dissolved and gone, how do you think she reacted? What do you think her husband did when he saw her? What do you think she did? My guess is that no one had to tell them, you know what, now it's time to have joy. It's really time to be happy because now you're not with pirates anymore and you're with your husband. It's, it's time to be happy and time to celebrate. My guess is that that was not prompted by anyone at all, but that there was just this amazing overflow of emotions as they ran and met one another and embraced. No one probably had to tell her, be happy that you get to see your dad again. Be happy that you can go to a normal life again. Be happy that you get to live with your husband again. Her husband said, words can't describe the joy and relief we feel. This is a day of happiness. No one had to ask him to say that. He could just spout those things off because of the reality that he was faced with. It's this natural overflow of all that had happened. It's this natural overflow of being rescued, of being reconciled, of being safe from, a min, from an enemy. And believers, we've been rescued. We've been reconciled. We've been saved. And we are safe from the enemy. So let us rejoice in this amazing love that has been demonstrated in this reconciling work of Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. It is the grounds for our hope. It is the grounds for our assurance. It is the grounds for our joy. And so I'm calling on all of us who are believers to rejoice, 
calling for those who are not believers to believe, to see this love. Christ gave us an amazing picture of his love for us. And this is something that he wanted to be remembered by. His body, his blood, broken and poured out. And this picture is the, the picture that we take at the Lord's Supper. It's also a, a, a meal that's not just a remembrance of what Christ has done, remembering that he has poured out his body, poured out his blood so that sinners could be reconciled. It's also a victory meal. See, right now we're, we're sitting on the enemy's territory and we're proclaiming that Christ has won the victory, that he will win the victory. He's coming again to finally and fully put down the enemy. This is a victory meal on foreign territory, behind enemy lines. And so I'd encourage you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have fully trusted in him, why don't you come and, and celebrate the victory that Christ won for you, that you're reconciled to a holy God because of what he has done, because of his body, because of his blood. If you're not a believer, don't, don't take this meal. There's no victory in Christ if you haven't trusted in him. Don't take this meal. Instead, take Jesus. Believe in him, and we'll get you ready to take this meal next time as one of the family, because this is a family meal. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then I encourage you guys, come and tear off a piece of the bread and dip in the juice and be reminded that you have victory in Christ based on his life, his work, his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, may the joy explode through this room as we take this meal and as we sing songs together and as we feast together afterwards based on not anything that we have done, not anything that we can point to as a, in another thing that's in this earth, but based on your life, your death, your resurrection. May we be extremely boastful in Christ. May we be extremely exulting in Christ. May we rejoice in him with a joy that seems to burst open at the seams because of what Christ has done. And may that not be just today, but tomorrow when we wake up and the next and the next. Father, we're asking that you would be exalted in our delighting in you. We're asking that you would be glorified in us just saying how great your love is for us. Show it to us. Show us how great of sinners we are, but show us how great your love is. That our sin doesn't even compare with the greatness of your love. God, be magnified in this meal as we come and take. Be magnified in our singing. Be magnified in our belief in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.